Welcome back to another episode of the Huxley Morton podcast. This week we have a special edition for you where I'm joined by a panel of experts and we're going to be discussing what it takes to change an industry. Uh, we've got an incredible lineup for you. I'm joined by Scott Sout, CEO at Medvector uh, and finance expert, finance expert, should I say, former guest on the Huxley Morton podcast. Uh, we've got Ted Bardson, COO at Medvector. Ted is a healthcare and physician practice expert. Then we've got Mr. Craig Lipsit, who rarely needs an introduction, uh, but he is the founder of Clinic Clinical Innovation Partners and the co-chair of DTRA, an all-round innovation expert. Uh, and last, but I guess not least, um, my regular co-host and biometrics expert, Mr. Adam Walker. Uh, guys, welcome to the Huxley Morton podcast. Good to be back here, James. Fantastic to have you on. Well, look, guys, um, as I said a couple of seconds ago, uh, look, we're going to be talking about what it uh, takes to change an industry. Um, so, look, I'll throw it out to the floor. Let's get going with this. Who wants to kick us off with what it, what it takes to change an industry? Okay, <laughs> I'll, I'll jump in. Um, <laughs> Take you know, it, Scott. I'd, I'd say that, you know, uh, most industries are similar in that, you know, it requires innovation, uh, sometimes a, a new type of technology, and a lot of times a catalyst. Um, and, you know, kind of what we're seeing in healthcare right now uh, is exactly that. So we've got the new technology that is telemedicine, and then we've got the pandemic, which kind of forced the adoption of telemedicine and and i think it kind of forced everybody to start thinking outside the box i'd probably add in there within healthcare uh there certainly always seems to have been some type of government uh impact as well in the process so uh just in general yeah, showing my age a little bit going back to uh y2k uh and the it en engagement there and what happened with that uh the requirement for physician practices to have an electronic medical record forced adoption. Uh, back in 2016, we went from 12,000 uh, codes to 72,000 codes, which impacted the revenue cycle uh, process. And uh, of course, uh, now we have something that uh, certainly isn't government driven, but uh, the pandemic, and that is driving a lot of adoption of telemedicine, uh, as well as in the clinical trial world, uh, obviously, an adoption of different processes and a decentralization of uh, of what we thought uh, previously we could not do. You know, Ted, I didn't realize that the adoption for electronic medical records was around Y2K. I never put that together. That that was there was almost two different instances. That was the there was the Y2K, and then uh, a few years later, there was the uh, requirement for uh, an EMR within the physician practices. Along with along with funding, right, with the uh, with the High Tech Act to uh, to make that happen, but you know, James, so much of uh, the innovation that we're seeing coming out of the pandemic is isn't really a story of of new capabilities, as you're hearing from Ted and Scott. This is a story of adoption of things that were already available. Telemedicine existed. Decentralized trials existed. They all struggled for adoption, and I think as we start to uh, aspire to see our ways out of this pandemic. You know, the real question now is what's going to be sustaining innovation versus change that got us through and kept our businesses going during this chaos. But will will there be a regression 
back to our old approaches, or will we be able to create the right sustaining environment for these innovations to outlast COVID? Sure. So, Craig, I know you and I have, have spoken before. You've also been on, on the show, and I, I guess, introduced yourself to, to Scott. Um, but look, how, I guess, my, my question, probably the, the question on the tip of the tongue of a lot of people is, why right now? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, right now, you know, if you look at the clinical trial space, you know, as a great example, um, the medicine development portfolio around the world was at risk a year ago last spring. And I'm not talking about COVID medicines because they didn't exist back then. These are the medicines in oncology, cardiovascular disease, neurology, all of the different therapeutic areas around the world. All of these studies were in jeopardy. And it was really the rapid adoption of these new approaches that kept these clinical trials going, that kept our medicine development portfolio around the world going. It was really the willingness of people to start to suddenly embrace. So I think that right now we've seen this this community get past a lot of inertia, right? We've, we've, we've overcome the, the first barrier around, can we actually use some of these tools in our environment in a legal and compliant way? Many of the initial reasons why people might have a tendency to say no in the first place, we've gotten past those. So now it's really just a question of sustaining. It's not so much a question for many of these organizations and leaders of, can I implement these different approaches? Now it's a question of, can I keep them? And keeping them is a very different story. That's a story of organizational commitment. That's a story of change management. That's a story of culture and readiness to encourage people to keep using these new approaches and not revert back. I think, though, as we think about what is really a very competitive landscape, I think that many clinical research operators appreciate that there's not a sustainable future for them in going back, that they're not going to be able to compete for enrollment. They're not going to be able to, if you're an investigator in research, you're not going to be able to compete for new studies. If you're a sponsor designing yet another clinical trial in a given disease area, you're not going to be able to compete for enrollment if you keep relying on the old approaches while the rest of the community is moving forward. And I think that 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 competitive spirit inside of this industry is probably going to be an important catalyst for keeping this change going. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've seen a, a lot of that, certainly from, from my involvement with the, the recruitment side of things, the, the competitive, the, the market is really buzzing at the moment. Uh, but perhaps one of the biggest things I've seen has been just this huge focus on decentralized trials um, and I guess remote trials, telemedicine. So look, I, I guess... So the guys at perhaps at Medvector, if you could perhaps sort of pitch in on that, what sort of impact have you seen in that area? Well, as far as the adoption of um, the our business model, uh, you know, we were you know talking to pharma for you know a couple of years uh, before the pandemic, and while people got it and they liked it, it was still very much of that's not how we do it. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I constantly was asking, well, why, why not? Why, why couldn't we do it, uh, you know, this way? And it was just kind of running around in a circle. Um, and so the, you know, the pandemic really kind of forced everybody to step outside their comfort zone and look at new uh, opportunities just by, you know, this forced adoption. And so, 
you know, the, the timeline for MedVector, you know, really started ticking in about January of this year. Uh, it wasn't when we founded the company. So fortunately, you know, we had a, a huge head start in getting our technology and our business model uh, to market. Um, and it's looking like a pretty interesting solution. Mm-hmm. So, you know, James, uh, Scott and Ted were, were ahead of the curve, right, in, in, in preceding the pandemic. Um, it remind, when I first met them, and thank you, by the way, for that kind introduction, you know, their work reminded me a lot of a conversation that I had 10 years ago at Pfizer when we were doing that original remote trial. And so we had designed this, the, the first fully decentralized trial, and I was walking the hallways because we were able to do that back then. And I was stopped in the hallways by, by a gentleman who was the, uh, the VP and head for commercial development at Pfizer. And he had pointed out to me there that he, he saw how these remote and decentralized studies were going to enable a new way for us to engage physicians in the community. That at the time, uh, companies like Pfizer could only invite physicians to be investigators or invite them to send their patients away and refer them to investigators. And for the vast majority of physicians, both of those are unappealing um, pathways. And that this idea of a remote investigator could actually enable a third option that didn't exist. And I remembered it and I filed it away, but I filed it away under like wait and see, because as Scott just mentioned, without having this momentum around decentralized, I think it's hard for pharma to appreciate a new model like this. In a lot of ways, like now that we're seeing this adoption of decentralized, what MedVector is doing is it feels like it's the first of a new ecosystem of capabilities yeah. that are going to start to emerge as a consequence of decentralization. And I'm really excited to see how this shift in how we're doing our studies enables these types of new business models to emerge that we couldn't make happen three years ago. So, so let, me, let me kind of fill everybody in that isn't familiar with MedVector on what MedVector is and, and what we do. And so there's, there's really kind of two uh, key components that MedVector does. And the first is we are enabling local physicians to offer clinical trial medications as care options for their local patients. Now, this is something that just simply wasn't available uh, before the MedVector model and before the decentralized clinical trial model. Now, on the flip side of that, what we're also doing is we're enabling patients the ability to participate in clinical studies, regardless of where they live, because now they can do it from their local doctor's office, rather than having to live close to a clinical trial site. And, um, and so I think, I think, Craig, you can speak to, you know, the existing challenges as far as patient recruitment, and, and, and the struggles about how doctors do them, and patients, where patients want to hear from them. Um, and this has kind of been kind of an elegant solution in enabling those two parties to come together. Yeah, you know, we've, uh, James, people have talking with enthusiasm about clinical research as a care option for a while now. How do we enable all patient encounters to be ones where a patient can learn about research, where they're obtaining care? And it makes sense that people would think that way, because when you look at data from places like Syscript, the I always have to take a deep breath before I spell it out. The 
Center for Information on the Study of Clinical Research Participation, but Syscript does some amazing data gathering each year on perceptions and insights related to people and research. And it's there that you see over and again that the overwhelmingly preferred path for how people want to learn about research is from their existing physicians which makes sense. That's who they're making shared decisions around their treatments. And that's where they want to learn about research as another option. And mm -hmm. yet we know that for that to happen requires serendipity. You happen to go to a doctor who happens to be an investigator that happens to be the right study for you. It's kind of crazy that the system ever works. Um, <laughs> but to actually start to find these models where now physicians in the community don't have to be investigators, but can be motivated and aware and incentivized in a legal and ethical way to have conversations with patients about trials that may be right for them is kind of game changing. Isn't it? The other thing that I wanted to uh, uh, really talk about within that why right now uh, concept is that because of the pandemic, on average, physicians practice revenue has decreased 55% since the uh, uh, COVID-19 crisis began, 55%. Patient volume has dropped 60%. And that just came out in an MGMA report that was just reported um, uh, this month. And so why right now? Well, there's certainly the, the need for that physician uh, to look at other ways that they, they can uh, make sure that uh, they're trying to not only get advanced medicine to their patient, but protect the income and the staff that they have at their practice. And so I think that there's an openness uh, to clinical trial uh, as a care option approach uh, in the physician world to, a, to a, a certain degree because of the impact of the pandemic. I think, I think also the, the point that both yourself and, and and Scott have spoken to Ted, it's really about that, that change of mindset in the physician, in that if they do it the old way, nothing's going to change. And medicine is moving forward rapidly. The old way is very conservative, is very constrained. And as we know, scientists, myself included, you know, we, we like protocols, we like fix, we like to work to a certain structure. And I, I mean, we, we've all experienced it personally and professionally over the last year, 18 months how that has had to shift in our day-to-day -day working, never mind, you know, the collaborations that we're seeing and experiencing even now is, is around that adoption of engagement, isn't it? It's engagement with healthcare professionals and patients, but it's also using the tools at our disposal that perhaps we just took for granted before now are an essential part of everything that we're doing. Adam, I, I, can't, I can't agree more. And I think that operationally, uh, you know, I've had the the pleasure of, of working with some very, very large health systems that are uh, uh, numbering in the 4,000 uh, physicians in a multi-specialty network and uh, uh, being involved with an MSO that had 400 plus uh, doctors involved in it. And I can tell you right now, uh, you, can, you can say all you want about aligning incentives and all that type of uh, importance, but really what that means is I need to make sure that I am protecting, from the doctor's perspective, uh, I need to make sure that I'm protecting my market share. That's the patient. I'm protecting my revenue source. I have a clear path to how I can make money and income for this. And probably most importantly, 
I am protecting my time to make sure that I'm able to provide the, uh, the, the medicine and care to my patients that I wanna do. And I think that if you can keep those three elements in, in mind, when you're going at engaging the physician with clinical trials, then all of a sudden it, it turns the prism a little bit and you're able then to have a conversation with them where clinical trials is not a, a something that's being pushed away, but it's something that's being welcomed. So Ted, look, on, on that, uh, I guess, point, I mean, what is, I guess, what is it like for doctors right now? Because we're hearing, you know, for me as a recruiter, I'm always on, on LinkedIn. I see patient centricity plastered pretty much everywhere. Um, look, to the outside individual, what does this mean? What's missing and how, I guess, yeah, how could that perhaps be changed? What's, 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 what's the real message here that I, that I, you know, when we're seeing that, what does that really mean? So I, I think that there's a couple of things with that. I, I, I certainly uh, am in agreement that we need, need to be uh, patient-centric and patient-focused and, and make sure it's easy for all of us to get care and to be involved in the clinical trials. But what I think is uh, changed and what I think part of what MedVector does is that the path to being patient-centric is through the doctor. Because as Craig mentioned earlier, it's the most trusted relationship uh, that you're gonna have is between the treating doctor and myself, I'm the patient. That's the relationship that's going to be trusted. So if my doctor comes to me and says, you know, you should consider this clinical trial as a care option, I'm gonna be interested. And that opens up all sorts of other avenues uh, around uh, being able to reach and, and have a more diverse population for clinical trials, uh, to have a better stickiness uh, for patients to be involved in trials. But to get to that conversation, you must be able to make sure that you're, you're making sure that doctor is not referring their patient away, that doctor has a clear path to how they're going to be able to make revenue and income for their path, because that protects the staff that they've hired, and you're protecting their time. Sure. Now, it's such an would... interesting point that, you know, I think sometimes people perceive that they, they almost misconstrue patient centricity and direct a patient. They almost assume that by blasting things to patients, I'm being patient-centric. When I, I think Ted makes a very interesting point, which is, you know, by stopping and listening to patients, understanding their preference and executing based on that is the path to patient centricity. It doesn't necessarily mean that you're blasting information and messages just directly to patients. That's not really the right vision for patient centricity. And here the patient voice has been very clear. They want to learn about research from their care team. Mm -hmm. I, know, I guess I think this has always been the, the brain boggler for me is because um, I'm, I'm guilty of that myself, um, Greg, and I think there's probably many people out there that are also. Um, I guess my question is, I guess, where are, say, MedVector unique? And perhaps to, to you, Scott, look, as a finance expert turned healthcare CEO, you know, are there challenges as an industry outsider, perhaps like myself? Um, how have you guys done, you know, dealt with this? And how are you, I guess, yeah, infiltrating a market that, that is fairly fresh to yourself um, and what's, yeah, what's allowing you to, I guess, leverage your, your previous skills? 
So, uh, all right. So throwing the outsider under the bus. Okay. Th thanks, James. Appreciate <laughs> it. Uh, you're, you're welcome. Look, you've been here before. You know what to expect. <laughs> uh, well, you know, the, the easy way to answer that is that I do what you do, right? I surround myself by experts and I stay out of the way, right? Uh, and, and that's, that, so you're absolutely right. You know, selling into healthcare requires a bit of a pedigree. Um, and being an outsider, I don't have that pedigree. I'm not a doctor, right? Um, I haven't run clinical studies. Um, I haven't worked for Pfizer. Um, I haven't worked with practices or done any of that budgeting. Um, but, you know, the experience that I do have in finance is still relevant for running and putting a company together. Um, but I would say that the, the, the best way to ad address being an outsider is not trying to be an expert. So, you know, my biggest role is making sure that the team that surrounds me is, is effective. And like I said, then get out of their way, give them the tools necessary for them to be successful. And, you know, I, I think we see it, you know, quite often, and this is, you know, my finance side talking when I've helped other startups is, you know, occasionally you'll see uh, a scientist become a CEO um, or a programmer become a CEO. And typically it's a better fit for that person to be that expert rather than the leader for the company. They could still be, you know, very much a voice of the direction of the company, but where they want to be is in research, is programming, in creating the product, but not necessarily dealing with the day-to-day -day operations uh, and logistics of the company itself. Um, and so I, I think that you, you tend to see um, some conflict occasionally when you have an expert acting as the driving force for the company. Um, and so I think that a benefit that I have is I know that I'm not the expert. So, you know, I try not to let my ego get in the way and I try to make sure that I have the right people for those right roles. And then I make sure everybody's pointed in the right direction. And again, I stay out of their way and give them the tools that they need to be successful. Sure. So you're kind of the, the idea man, the, the businessman behind, I, I guess, what you're trying to achieve. But look, I guess in general, perhaps to, to Ted, Scott, all of you guys why do you think it is that the healthcare market is so ripe and ready for innovations like this right now and perhaps what's been holding things back to this point is i guess probably the, the question from me and many others well i'll jump in uh you know i first i think that uh, uh just to talk a little bit about uh, scott and finding the right people uh, I, I think the other thing that that certainly does help is that, you know, there is a lot of uh, excellent companies, fantastic people that are established in this marketplace. And so there's a lot of factors that they realize that there needs to be some change, but factors stop that from happening. Now, though, today, and, and to a certain extent because of COVID, uh, there's been uh, several reports, and I'm seeing this from conversations with sponsors and uh, uh, with uh, CROs and principal investigators. It's about 75% of sponsors right now are incorporating virtual elements into studies. And 73% of those sites, sites are using telemedicine uh, after the pandemic. So really, what, why now? What can happen with this? It's uh, Scott being someone that certainly is on the outsider, but being able to ask that question, why is this not being accepted right now? And then finding those folks and getting to that 
uh, person that uh, is an existing player in a large uh, company, a large sponsor, what have you, and being able to go after them and say, hey, you know, let's look at our process and understand what we can do incrementally to make a change to have some impact uh, in our particular world in increasing participation uh, with a simple outreach to the doctor. But there's other areas that are being very, uh, very much impacted because uh, of kind of the release of uh, ideas that exist today because of the uh, certain extent, the COVID effect. Sure, Adam, it looks like you want to jump in there. I'll let you jump you, in you there. You make a great point. I, I, I wanted to also make the point, you know, not only has Scott uh, surrounded himself with, with very good people, but actually, to be fair to him, he has an awful lot of charisma and he might not say this himself, but but actually, <laughs> I think I, I think Scott Scott has an interesting, um, an interesting backstory. But more importantly, you know, he has charisma. He has a certain... Um, status that that goes you know that precedes him and 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 in any organization you need a figurehead and and i think scott is absolutely that figurehead working alongside yourself ted in in pushing the vision forward knowing very clearly what what medvector is and on the flip side what medvector isn't and that's what i hear and see regularly you know and for full disclosure you know i've been working with these guys for for some time now and i've seen that firsthand uh you know, th there is a clear vision, there is a clear structure. And, and what Scott speaks to around the point of having often in, in many, many similar companies, having a medic at the lead or a medically qualified person, by very definition, they come with a whole set of different skills, different to those that Scott and Ted come to uh, the, the party with. So, you know, there, there is that, that differentiator as well. And I think it's a key point to make as well around, around personality fit and identifying a gap. And, and really pushing that door open as hard as he possibly can. And I, I, I see that firsthand, actually. Well, thank you, Adam. Uh, <laughs> uh, I, I would just add that, you know, sometimes uh, innovation is just an outside perspective, right? So it's yeah. just somebody looking at things differently. Yeah. Um, so, you know, an example of that that everybody's familiar with is, you know, you talk about Uber, right? So the guys that started Uber were not taxi drivers, right? They were people that wanted rides and saw a broken model and saw a way to, to fix it using a bunch of existing technology. And that's similar to, you know, what Medvector's doing. Um, and so, you know, it, it's, it's not about being the smartest guy in the room, you know, sometimes it's just about being in the right place at the right time and, and adding that fresh perspective. And absolutely acting on that, on that idea and making it making it happen well, taking the leap is 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 a big part of it yeah that, that that's that's quite that, you know without without a safety net that's quite that's quite a leap you've taken i would say you know but, it's taking a leap and it's being persistent around and committed to the change but not to the point of being foolhardy right like there's yeah. a certain amount of persistence here that was required it could have been easy to step back and say the marketing buying this um, right, because it is hard to sell innovative new solutions here. James, you mentioned earlier, why is now the market ready for innovation? I don't even know if they really are in earnest, but I know they're adopting <laughs> some, right? And, you know, some is enough to enable med players like Medvector to get this kind of momentum right now, right? Because they ride on the heels of DCT so elegantly that mm -hmm. when sponsors say, we're already using video, we're already using mobile nurses. Now it's like an incremental uh, innovation rather than something radical, but you know, it requires leadership persistence like a lot of entrepreneurs and, but not to the point of being foolhardy. At some point, 
some Scott may have had to have pulled the parachute and said, you know, we gave it a go and, and it wasn't the right solution. But fortunately for the ecosystem, he didn't do it before uh, before COVID-19. And now, you know, companies like this were able to to ride this um, this adoption curve. And look at the air miles you saved over the last 18 months, Scott, by doing it this way rather than jumping on planes and trains and automobiles. Yep. <laughs> well, look, I, I know that Scott's probably not the man that would uh, probably like to pull the cord. Um, I've heard a few stories about his past and sort of his sporting uh, achievements, etc. I know that that sort of drives a lot of motivation. Um, but look, there, there's others in the market, I, I guess. Um, there's a lot of new companies out there, a lot of innovation, a lot of startups. Um, so in general, guys, putting Medvector perhaps to one side, is is there room for everyone who, you know, what do you think is going to perhaps be the differentiator between who makes it and perhaps who, who doesn't? Is there something there that perhaps, I guess, makes Medvector unique, stand out, other than your, your good selves, you know, your fantastic um, gents to speak to? And as Adam said, you know, a lot of charisma there between, um, you know, you guys as a collaborative but what else is it that you think that will allow you guys to stand out and perhaps others are doing things in, in other lines of, of work? Like in any one category, there's really only so many, so many players that are going to survive. Now, in some categories around how clinical research dollars are spent, there is enough spend that multiple can survive. Although in some categories, there's been so much capital raised that there are some extraordinary targets that the leaders have to be able to bring back in terms of sustaining some of their own growth expectations. Mm -hmm. But, you know, in a lot of those cases, these are companies that are competing for the same dollar within that, um, within that life cycle of how pharma spends their clinical research, um, uh, their clinical research spend. What's interesting here is how a player like Medvector is able to fit into an ecosystem amidst DCT players, investigator sites, CROs, recruitment vendors, and fit in a collaborative way the way that they are. And it's it's an interesting niche. And I, I think that it's a fortunate one. It's I think it's a, it's a pretty rare one that you're not bumping into lots of other stakeholders in this particular space, but can complement even integrated research organizations, companies that are trying to help uh, research night physicians to become investigators. It's, it's a pretty unique story to be able to complement quite as many as they do. Um, I'm sure there are others out there. I know there are others out there that likewise have found similar niches, but it's pretty hard to find. Impressive, impressive stuff. And look, Adam, I guess, look, Scott mentioned earlier um, perhaps the importance of a team. And, you know, clearly that's where he comes in. He's the, the, the industry outsider of, you know, I've thrown him under that bus already, but he's defended himself well. Well played, Scott. Um, but look, as our resident healthcare expert, biometrics expert, what are your thoughts, again, on, I guess, the team that Scott has, has built and perhaps, I guess, as my typical co-host, you know, give us a summary on, on perhaps why, why right now, why Medvector um, to, to bring us in for a landing? Well, as I said, 
Scott has enormous charisma, and, and that takes me back to the first time that we spoke, actually. Um, he contacted me and made direct contact on LinkedIn, and I, I sent him over my uh, my number, and, and before I knew it, my phone was ringing, and we were doing a FaceTime, and I was walking my dogs <laughs> over in the fields not far from where I live. Uh, anyway, an hour and a half later, as the sun was going down and my phone was dying literally in my hand, and it was getting dark, uh, my phone was pinging, my wife was ringing me saying, where on earth have you fallen down a ditch or something? <laughs> we were still talking. And this was the first time we'd ever spoken. And I, I did, you know, full disclaimer at the time. I said, I said, Scott, look, I'm, I'm out walking my dogs. So I'm, I'm happy to talk. Put, put the camera on. And we, we were stood there. Literally, my arm was dropping off. And yet, everything that Scott was saying to me and our engagement was just on point. You know, it was just pinging, pinging, pinging. The the messages were so so strongly resonating with me and they've continued to do so in all of our engagements since uh, and what what i think you know he's managed to do is really surround himself with industry leaders you know craig would not bang his own drum but to be quite clear you know if there's a mountain craig is sitting on the on, on the top of that with regards to dct his influence and his experience in in decentralized clinical trials alongside someone you know a, a healthcare seasoned professional like ted and and there are many others on the advisory board as well who who i've come into contact with and and without exception they follow a similar theme you know they're committed professional people who deliver and absolutely speak to speak to the points that that medvector are all about you know they're about engaging patients unlocking patients um with, with healthcare professionals across the globe. You know, this isn't a model that just sits in the US as well. And I think this is a key point to make. Irrespective of the governance models within whichever uh, geography we're talking about, this model fits. It fits to the UK, to Europe, to the US globally. And there aren't many that can say that, I would say, because it's agnostic. It's effectively an agnostic system that can be applied to any, se any setting. Um, so, you know, I've probably covered a lot of bases there, but actually, you know, in a roundabout way, there is an incredible opportunity here. And I think it's about timing. It's about hitting the sweet spot, but also about getting the right technology and a very, very strong leadership team around around that that message. Um, you're nodding, Scott. Do you want to come in and tell your side of that story? <laughs> I, I, well, I, I was just going to say, Adam, you're hired. <laughs> <laughs> Keep going. <laughs> but it's, it sounds like um, you have created a ph phenomenal team there, um, Scott, and, and how you've done it is, is impressive. You know, there's clearly no messing about on, on your end. You know, if someone puts you in touch with someone, you're straight on the ball. You know, even, you know, that story with Adam, his phone was ringing before he even knew it. Um, his wife was wondering where he, he was. Um so look, it's, it's, it is pretty incredible what you guys have done. I remember when, when you first came on the show, I was blown away by the business model. And um, look, if anyone tuning in has not checked out MedVector, um, our podcast episode with, with Scott, or their explainer video that is also available on YouTube, highly, highly recommend it uh, because it is incredible. And it's, it's simplified. And I think that was one of the big things that I got from you, Scott, when you and I first spoke. I think you may well have to remind me of your quote about simplicity, if you will. Ted, over to Ted. Oh, he's, he's put you under the bus, Ted. There you go. <laughs> oh, it, it, we may have uh, we may have lost Ted. He may, may have, have lost, lost Ted. Well, look, 
Well, well Ted, Ted has actually uh, reinvented the quote and it's better. And he did it like two days ago. But uh, what we used to always say is simplicity is the ultimate complication. And what that means is it's really hard to get something down to its most simple form. Um, you know, you can, you can create something that has a lot of buttons uh, or you can create a slick device that has minimal buttons, just the buttons that you need. Um, and, you know, my, my mother would tell you that that's how she wants all TV remotes to be, to be created. And instead, the TV remotes, they put as many buttons on it as they can. And it drives my mother crazy. And so it's that whole concept of simplicity being uh, difficult. There you go. I guess simplicity sometimes is very difficult, as we're experiencing right now with, with Zoom. The fact that Ted has whipped off, he's managed to jump back in. Um, That's right. Seamless, seamless. Look at that. Well, Ted, what was the new uh, simplicity quote? Uh, simplicity is the ultimate complication. Well, no, but we yesterday we came up with something new, or you said something new, and, and we both got excited. There's there's so many words of wisdom that come out of my mouth. It's hard to keep track of all. It really it's true. is. This is true. <laughs> There you go. And that's that's just some of them. Well, look, um, guys, it's been an absolute pleasure having you, I guess, back on the show to share a bit more about what's been going on with, with um, sort of Medvector, the industry in general, and how we're going to change that industry. I think you've given some great insights here um, and your yeah, standpoint and viewpoint on patient centricity. Being a bit, a bit of an eye opener um, for me, I'm sure it perhaps will be the same for, for many others. Um, but look, before we close the show, is there anything else that you guys would like to give us um, a quick insight onto before we, we wrap up and let you all get on to enjoy the rest of your day? My insight is that everybody has to keep listening to uh, to your content here, James. It's great to uh, it's Oh, great it's to fantastic, hear isn't it? It's fantastic. It's good stuff, man. I appreciate <laughs> you it. You and Thank Adam you are a great this. team. Yeah, you're, you're a great team. And uh, uh, I think that... Uh, you look at the roster of guests that you've had uh, come down the pike here has been uh, just extremely educational and motivational for me as well. So excellent this, job. This would never have happened had it not been for the pandemic. I'm sure James and I would never have come into contact. And actually none of us, well, certainly I, I don't think I'd have had the opportunity to be in the virtual room here. That's for sure. Definitely. Well, look, guys, as, as I've said before, it's an absolute pleasure to uh, have you back on the show. Thanks once again for being a part of the Huxley Morton podcast and have a fantastic day. Thanks for tuning in. And if you got value from this video, hit the like button and let me know what you thought in the comments. And of course, if you're new to this channel and you want to follow the stories of industry leaders, this is definitely the channel for you. Hit the subscribe button, hit the notification bell, and I'll see you in the next video.